morning, church. And uh, for those of you who are new or just joining us today visiting, uh, just to bring you up to speed, we are walking through the book of Acts in the New Testament. We're about halfway through, so you're in the middle of a story uh, here. But just to help you, the book of Acts was written to describe the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ, beginning in Jerusalem, moving out to the outer regions of Judea and Samaria, and it's meant to spread to the ends of the earth, and that's part of why we're here this morning, is because the gospel has continued to spread, and we want it to continue to spread. And uh, so we need to pick up where it left off, and one of the things that's been nourishing my heart from Pastor Daniel's sermon last week was uh, one of the statements that he made when he said, and you'll probably remember it, that um, a worshiping heart is a seeing heart. And then he expanded it to say that a worshiping church is a seeing church. And of course, he was talking about when the church gathered in prayer and fasting, and they were seeking God together, they began to see more clearly what the Spirit was wanting to do. And what they wanted to do started to align with what the Spirit wanted to do, and that was to set apart Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries, to be those who would be trailblazing pioneer missionaries to bring the gospel to places it had not yet gone. And uh, so we get to pick up on their journey today. But before we do, let me pray and ask God's hand upon us. God, it is such a good reminder that a worshiping heart is a seeing heart. And so we know, Lord, if our hearts are not worshiping, we're not going to see. And so I pray for all of us, Lord, that our hearts would engage you during this time so that we can see what we're meant to see. And that you guide us the way that you would wish to guide us. Help our hearts to align with yours. Help us to submit our hearts to Lord, I pray that you give each person here what they need this morning. Some came in this morning not knowing that they had a lot bigger need than they even realized. Would you meet that need through the preaching of your word for the glory of your name in Jesus' name? <laughs> so the journey continued. Remember, they were on the island of Cyprus, and then they continued to set sail. They headed north. And they landed in a place called Perga, in this region called Pamphylia. You know, you're not going to get quizzed on those things uh, later on. But what is important to know is when they got there, um, John left them. So it was Paul Barnabas and then a companion who was helping them in ministry. His name is John, or John Mark, or just Mark. Um, goes by these different names. He's called Mark John in this text. And I highlight this because... At the beginning of our text, it almost just seems like a throwaway statement. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Why did John leave? Mark. John Mark. Why did he leave? Was he homesick? Was he intimidated by the prospects of persecution in the places that they were headed? Was it the treacherous journey he was anticipating, heading north up to the city of Antioch, where we're going to be in a few minutes? Through the mountain ranges, like a 110-mile journey? Was he just tired? Weary? Was there an issue that he had with Paul's leadership? Short answer? I have no idea. <laughs> the text doesn't say. Right? We don't know why he left, but what we do know is this. Whatever reason it was, it rubbed Paul wrong. And Paul didn't think it was a very good reason for why he left. 
And I just mentioned this because this throwaway statement, it seems, you know, that John left them and headed back to Jerusalem. This is going to become a source of tension in two chapters, in chapter 15. So I just kind of want you to tuck that away, and we're going to revisit it. But like is always the case, the mission is way bigger than any one person. It's bigger than John. It's bigger than Barnabas. It's bigger than Paul. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. And so the mission must march onward, right? And so they travel up to Pisidian Antioch, where they are now going to minister. And uh, they pick up what is going to be a normal practice for them. And that is, when they first get to a new place, you know where their first stop is usually going to be? A synagogue. They go to a synagogue. And they meet with the Jews there, and they start reasoning with them from the scriptures, trying to help them see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the long-awaited Savior, the Deliverer that their people have been expecting for a long time. So that would be normal for them. And so here they are in a typical synagogue service. So prayers are prayed. There's a reading from the Old Testament law and prophets. And then, as we would think of it, then there's the sermon, right? A word of encouragement or exhortation to the people. And uh, there's this mixed group of people there, mainly Jews, but some of them are God-fears, kind of like Cornelius that we met some chapters ago. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, but he's sympathetic to the teachings of Judaism, and he... Uh, believes in the God of Israel, or there's even some more people that you could call proselytes, people that were Gentiles that are actual full converts to Judaism. So kind of a mixed group of people there before him, but mainly Jews. And and uh, Paul and Barnabas are in attendance, and obviously they caught people's eye, and they must look like rabbis. I don't know if they're wearing their nice collar or what they were doing, but they could tell that they were teachers, and so they send message to Paul and Barnabas and say, hey, it's time for the sermon. If you guys have a word of encouragement, stand up, say it. Tell the people. That's where they're at right now. That's the scene that we're in, in this synagogue. And um, I just wonder what's going on in Paul's mind. He's put on the spot here. You know what I think he's thinking? I think he's thinking, they're asking me for a word of encouragement. But what they need is the word of encouragement. And Paul is saying to himself, like, I was made for this. I was redeemed for this. I was sent out by my local church for this. To tell them the word of encouragement that their souls need. In fact, that every soul needs. This is what is driving Paul, this is what's on his mind and on his heart. And I thought maybe a good application of this would be for me to ask one of the visitors to get up here and (laughs) preach the (laughs) sermon. Is he joking or not? Yes, I am joking. Partially. Um, And that's because in one sense, we're learning something really early on here. We're going to see Paul is glad to be part of this book. Because Paul has something to say. He has a message that he's been commissioned to deliver, to herald. He has the word of encouragement. And even at FBC, this is one of the ways we think about doing life as a church together, is equipping the saints 
to do the work of the ministry. In other words, we recognize that every single Christian, every Christian, is called to give a reason for the hope that is in Called to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in So we want to have a certain edge where there's a readiness in our hearts. We want to prepare for a moment like Paul is experiencing here. Like, for example, like even in my Bible 101 class in the morning, sir, um, Sunday school, I'll usually teach on a different topic from Scripture, and then we'll break into small groups, and then we'll have we'll talk about it together, but not just start saying, oh, this is what I think. But we'll try to communicate it. We'll try to speak it so that we get good at internalizing truth so that we can speak it to our own hearts, so we can speak it to one another, and so we can speak it to others that are lost. And so we're equipped to be ready to give a word. The same thing kind of happens in our leaders' training in Titus 2 training times, only a little more intense. For example, we'll do this exercise called always be ready. Did you see where this is going? A little bit? So we take these really famous um, uh, yogurt containers, and uh, there's two of them, and one of them, there's um, these shredded piece of papers with doctrines on them, Te- different teachings from scriptures, and then the other one has people's names, like all these participants, right? And so I'll pull out one of the doctrines, like the doctrine of creation, or the doctrine of the fall, right? And then I will say, all right, let's take two, one or two minutes meditating on this doctrine, and pray, not anxiously trying to read our notes, no, but those way, we're going to pray that God would help us remember these things, that we depend on His Holy Spirit, and we're going to be ready. We don't know if you're going to fall, and then I take one of those out. Or I pick two because Jesus often sent them out by twos, so they get to do things together. Or if I teach on a fresh one, we'll break the small groups and practice speaking it to one another. I mean, some of these people can't even eat yogurt to this day. They kind of get all anxious whenever they see a yogurt container now. No, it's actually glorious, though, because they all do well. I mean, they all do well because they're preparing to to be ready. And there's a sense in which, you know, that's good for training, but really for every Christian, you know, we want to grow in our understanding of what the Bible teaches to where we're more and more ready on the things that we're being taught to be able to express them to others. But you begin at the very basic level talking about the heart of our faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very thing that the Apostle Paul is ready to speak on the spot in this moment. All of us must be ready, right? Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. I hope one thing that this sermon will do is really equip you for that. Because the gospel will be clear in this sermon. That you'll be able to get your mind and heart around it. Say, oh, that's the message that I am meant to take upon my lips. God has a way of putting his people in strategic places, right? To bear witness. For him. But it's also important to see that we're not just waiting for writing in the sky. Like we're putting ourselves in positions. You didn't see when the scripture, thus saith the Lord, go to the synagogue. Well, like, that could be a spot where I would have an opportunity. And here he is, hoping to get called. Pick me. Pick me. So he's on the spot. He's ready to go, knowing that he has not only a word of encouragement. He has the word of encouragement to speak to these people. So let me just read really quick what I've talked about so far. Verse 13. And Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, when they went to the synagogue and sat down, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, as to silence them, gets up to speak. That's going to be the word of encouragement. And this is where he's going to go in his sermon at the synagogue this day that's going to be instructed to us. He's going to spend this first section uh, verses, you could say, uh, verses 16 through 25, um, helping them, kind of preparing them to appreciate the word of encouragement by showing that it's going to come as a promise that God gave a long time ago. Right? So that first part, he's just kind of preparing them for the word of encouragement. Then he's going to help them try to understand the word of encouragement and how it's been fulfilled even in their day. And then finally, he's going to turn and help them respond to the word of encouragement as their only hope, as it is their only hope. So let's see how he tries to help them get this. And I'm not going to reread all the text because I think you can see it's a long one this morning. But in this next section, what he's going to do basically is he's going to highlight God's faithfulness through Israel's history. Right? Give kind of a selective history, brief sketch of Israel's history in order to show how faithful God has been through, to the fathers through the ages in giving his promise. Right? In other words, when he gives the word to them, he wants them to see just didn't drop out of the sky out of nowhere. This came out of a rich history of promise. That God is fulfilling their day, and their jaws are meant to hit the floor. They go, what a faithful God. And so he prepares them by starting, for example, to tell them that God chose them, right? It wasn't that they were special in themselves, but God chose them, and that's what made them special. And they multiplied in the land of Egypt, and then God led them out of Egypt, right? The book of Exodus, when they exit the iron furnace of Egypt and God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivers them from that house of slavery or as he says elsewhere he says I bore you up on eagles wings and brought you to myself he brought them up out of the land of Egypt God did that God chose them God led them out and then God put up with them this might be the biggest understanding in the text put up with them during their wilderness wanderings remember those stories in the book of Numbers Right? They're wandering through this parched land in the wilderness, grumbling about everything. But how did God act with them? He acted fatherly with them. Right? In Deuteronomy 131, it says that as a man carries his son, right, God carried them all the way through their wilderness wanderings. Right? Like a father with a son. They're thirsty, he gave them water. They're hungry, he gave them bread from heaven without fail. They were wearier in their wanderings. He made sure that their own clothes did not wear out and their feet didn't swell from all of their walking. In other words, they walked, but he walked with them. He cared for them all along the way. God chose them. God led them out. God put up with them in the wilderness. God gave them a home, just as he promised that they would. He removed these wicked nations, seven nations more numerous and mightier than they were, cleaned out the promise that he gave them the land that he had promised them. But he didn't stop there. God gave them judges, 
right? Up to that point, you got 450 years, right? So you have 400 years, roughly, in slavery in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, roughly 10 years of conquest when they're coming into the land, 450 years, and he's going to continue and say, well, up to the time of Samuel, he gave them judges, these babysitters, these timely deliverers, right, that would help get them out of trouble and their cycles of rebellion over and over again. Then God gave them kings. Right? Samuel anointed these two kings. Saul, God raised him up, and thankfully God got rid of him. And then God raised up David. And in one sense, Paul's heading fast forward button here, and he's moving through this history to get to this point, to highlight David, to put a circle around the name David, to be able to say, and this is where so much of God's promise was bound up, that God raised up David, the son of Jesse, a man after his own heart, a man who would do his will. And God gave promises to David, right, that he would never lack a son, one of his offspring to sit on his throne. And this is a promise that gets developed by all the prophets. They're talking about it constantly. Out of this broken down tree, this, this cut off tree, which is Israel, a shoot is going to come forth in the land. The shoot of Jesse that's going to come. The prophets speak about a shepherd king that's going to come. Even after David's been long dead, they're talking about another David coming. Another one who would be a man after God's own heart. A more ultimate David that's going to this And his point here, it's the same in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You see, this whole section is to show God has promised a Savior. And God is going to make good on this promise. And this promise is going to be fulfilled in a man named Jesus. And in case the people aren't going to be ready for him, God sent, you could say, kind of a handoff prophet. right? He sent John the Baptist, it's verses 24 in 25, he sent John the Baptist to take the hands of the people and put them into the hands of the Messiah. Right? To introduce the people to Jesus. After that long line of prophets, there's actually one prophet that didn't just talk about him from a distance, but actually got to, in real time, introduce him to the people. So, the stage is set. He's kind of helped them appreciate the promise, the history that's done. Look how faithful God has been. And it's good for us, you know, to pause and promise and or pause and think about God's faithfulness. I want to come back to that. But what I want us to see here is he skips over like a thousand years of history to make a beeline for Jesus Christ. To say, this is the promise. And now he's being introduced to Israel. And how do they respond? Right? John 1. He came to his own. And what happened? They did not receive him, right? He came to Israel. He came to Jerusalem, the long-awaited Savior. He's even personally introduced by the most popular, popular prophet, John the Baptist, right? At least popular in some, in some people's eyes, not all. Um, but here they failed. The people failed to recognize Jesus from there. Even though he was doing things and saying things that made it very clear that this man is different. Right? He's heavenly. He's a man after God's own heart. But they did not recognize him, in part because they did not understand what the prophets were talking about for all those many 
years. Jesus was all over the Bible. He was all over the Old Testament. That's why he says in Luke chapter 24, he says, all the law and the prophets are about me. In fact, he goes so far as to say that they talk about his sufferings and death and talk about his subsequent glories, his resurrection from the dead. So all these things are there in the Bible that it's said in this text that is read every week, every Sabbath. John the prophets, they just keep hearing these scriptures read. They just keep hearing them read over and over and over again, but they have hardened minds. There's a veil over their hearts. Listen to Paul's words elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, But their minds were hardened. <coughs> For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains on them. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. So what is Paul doing in that synagogue at the city of Antioch? He's there. They've had the law and the prophets. But they don't recognize Jesus. They don't understand the, the utterances of the prophets. He's there with God's help by his spirit to pull back the veil to speaking the word of encouragement by making known this ancient promise and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But since they did not recognize him, and even though they heard it over and over again every Sabbath day, um, they unwittingly fulfilled the scriptures in their dealings with Jesus. They basically just did all the things that the scriptures were describing what happened to the Messiah. For example, this is what they get credit for. They confirmed Jesus' innocence, though they didn't mean to. They tried to falsely accuse him, but it ended up proving that he was innocent. Even Pontius Pilate had to wash his hands and say, I'm innocent of this man's blood, right? They confirmed Jesus' innocence. They saw to Jesus' death, right? And they made provision for Jesus' burial. All these things were prophesied about in the Old Testament, right? And they unwittingly just carried them out under God's sovereign plan. They just did. That's what they did. But what's highlighted in this text is what God did. God raised his son. This is what God has done. Look at our text. So verse 28, I'll pick up there. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, his innocence, they asked Pilate to have him executed, his death on the cross. And when they had carried out all that was written from, of, written of him, the Old Testament law and prophets, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And then it says that he appeared for many days. And as he's appearing, he's revealing himself to people who are then going to become his what? His witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so this is what's being emphasized here. In verses 32 and 33, bring together these two first sections of his sermon where he says basically the promise that he had made and now the fulfillment in Christ. Look at verses 32 and 33. Paul saying, And we, as witnesses, bring you the good news, the good news, that what God promised the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So he's saying the fulfillment has come. The promised one has arrived. 
and everything that was said would happen to him has happened to him. God has raised him up, and then he gives three Old Testament passages to make his point that God has made good on his promise to David. Right? God has raised up his son. He quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, Psalm 16, verse 10, all of it together to say God has kept his covenant promises to David. God has indeed raised up. Just as he raised up David, he has raised up a more ultimate David, a man after his own heart. This is his point here. But there's a difference, right, between that David and this David. So he makes this point in verses 36 and following. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So what's that saying? There's a difference between David and the later David, Jesus, right? The first David, he served the purposes of God in his generation, and then he died like the rest of us, right? He went to the grave, his body decayed. He saw corruption. Right? But Jesus, he did die, but before his body saw corruption, God raised him from the dead. He's alive, and he's alive. And this is part of God's plan of salvation for people. This is what he wants to nail down so far up to this point. So his point is, is that God has raised up a man after his own heart. And he's done it in a more ultimate way, that everybody's salvation is going to depend on it. He's saying, I am bringing you the good news. I'm bringing you the word of encouragement. And it's important for us to recognize that the gospel that we bring to people is not just this random little fact about some random guy that just happened to step on the stage of history at this time and do a few things that just happened to be used in a certain way. Like, Jesus Christ coming was the fulfillment of a God who has faithfully dealt with the people all through history and said that he would do these things. And then he did it at the proper time. And he should get the rightful credit for doing what he has done in raising his son from the dead so that we can see him for who he truly is. Amen. He made promises, and now he's kept his promises. And we're meant to feel this. And even as we speak it, and that's why Paul was glad to be put on the spot. Because he knew he had something to say. God has raised up his son. And we can remind ourselves afresh this morning at how faithful God has been. Not one good word that God has promised has ever fallen to the ground unfulfilled. God has always kept his promises. Think about this. If you can see that God has kept his promises for thousands of years, don't you think that you can trust him for the smaller things during the span of your lifetime? <laughs> and if you have trusted him with the biggest thing, that is your soul for eternity, can't you trust him for the things that are weighing on your heart today? Put it in perspective of God's faithfulness throughout time in history and how he has showed up so we would see this about him and that we would trust him afresh for the needs of our hearts. So then Paul shifts, having prepared them for this and now has announced it, now he wants to help them respond. 
to this word of encouragement, the word of encouragement that he's given to them. Because Paul is, in a very real way, the way he's preaching here, saying, you don't need a word of encouragement. You need the word of encouragement. And emphasize on the need part. This is really important, right? Because what he's going to say next assumes that the people that are listening to him and some of you in this room are still in your sins and under a sentence of condemnation by God. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. He's going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. Right? And so he's saying that you need, this is the word you need, because of the situation that you are in. So you are in guilt, right? You have guilt that you've amassed because of your sin. And you're under a sense of condemnation. In other words, the verdict over your life is guilty because of sin. This is true for everybody outside of Christ. And one of the things he's going to try to press in on them is that neither having the law nor obeying the law is adequate to set you free. Right? Because... You know, they're religious folk. They're the ones that attend a synagogue week in and week out. But they're blind and dead, right? They don't see it. They've had it read over and over and over again, but they do not have eyes to see. The veil remains. But you know what their defense mechanism is? That defense mechanism is? But we have the law. And so my question would be, if I'm talking to one of these people, I want to say, well, okay, so let's think about it. You say, I have this law book. That's really good. Do you obey those laws? <laughs> Not all the time. Okay, so you have a stack of evidence against you. Is that what you're saying? Do you see? Like, okay, it's a blessing to have the law. It reflects beautiful things about God's character and his righteousness, right? It reflects the righteousness of God. The law is good and righteous, right? But when we disobey it, it also condemns us and criticizes us. And so to claim that, as almost like the thing that's going to get you through is a massive mistake. Because that book, as good as it is, just turned against you in some ways because of the evidence that it shows that you've broken God's law, right? And so for them, they're trying to grab onto it. But you don't have to have a law book like, like Jewish people might be tempted to do and say, hey, this, this is what's going to get you through. We, Moses is with us. And actually, Moses is criticizing. But... We can even say, well, I don't even have a law book. But we, are, we have a law in our own hearts that God has written there, right? In our own consciences. And we know that we have done wrong, that we have sinned against God. Paul's point really assumes all of this. But it's so important to see that whether you're claiming to your book, physical book of the law, or whether it's one in your own conscience, let's be honest, neither one of them are that favorable. Neither one of those can set you free, Right? And so what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see? Or Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. There's things that the law just could not do. They can't set you free. And he did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So his point is, you're in trouble, right? Everybody's in trouble, and he needs people to know that, right? To appreciate that fact. But then he wants to drive them back to their only hope. And that's why he says so beautifully in verse 38, 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, I love that, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Freedom will come, but it's going to come through this man. And this is where as Christians, we have to look at a text like this, and we just have to get some thicker skin. In a culture like we live in, like you guys are so narrow-minded, you think you have it all, you think you have the only way. Yeah, uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's not like my way, but it's his way, and if he says that that's the only way, then I would be a fool to disagree with him. That's right. Actually, eternally foolish to disagree with him. And so his point here is that we do have the message of salvation, verse 26, right? Sent them the message of this salvation. I have the good news, verse 32. We bring you the good news, right? And here he's saying it is through this man. In other words, there is an exclusivity to the Christian claim. It is only through Jesus Christ and what he has done that people get right with him. That's it. We have to claim that. We have to have thicker skin. Recognize in a culture that wants to claim all these things that are contradictory to one another. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go on that path. My soul is stake and so is yours. Right? And so we cling to the word of God and we recognize it is through this man that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And we also come to recognize what Paul felt in that moment in that synagogue with Simeon and Antioch. The privilege of bringing the message. People think they just need a word of encouragement. <coughs> Most people need a lot more than just a word of encouragement. They need the word of encouragement. This is good news. And the good news is this. Since God has been faithful to his promise, by raising his son, your sins can be forgiven. And your guilty verdict can be changed. That's the good news. Now I'm talking using this verdict language. Where is that coming? And it's a little slightly hard to see here because the ESV translates here, and bear with me, it's a little bit of a detailed point, but this is important and it's worth doing. So in verse 39 it says, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. You notice that word? Did you see the footnote if you have an ESV translation? The footnote says justified. And the reason why they translate it freed and not justified is because it's just awkward to translate justified into the English. It just doesn't fit as smoothly. So they're trying to bring out the basic idea with freed. But I think the word justified is the one that's meant to be worked. It meant to be said here and understood. To be justified is to be declared Righteous. It's for God to declare someone righteous. For God to speak a verdict over someone's life. Not guilty, innocent, acceptable in my sight. Right? And so he's saying, through this man, through Jesus, there can be forgiveness of sins. Right? That guilt canceled out. Right? Sins paid for, nailed to the cross of Christ. I bear them no more. And then a new verdict right here. From not guilty to innocent righteous in God's sight. And his voice is the only one that matters. He's telling you how this verdict changes here. And so this is indeed good news. And so 
Some other translations kind of venture and deal with the awkwardness a little bit more and bring out the idea. So, for example, I'll just state two of them. Um, the NIV puts it this way. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Or the NLT puts it simply this way. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. Something the law of Moses could never do. That's the basic idea. You can be declared righteous in God's sight. Okay? But here's the thing. As Paul is announcing these things, right? Because Jesus died and rose, forgiveness and justification can be offered. Right? As Paul's announcing this, the reality is, is that the people that are in front of him at that moment, and some of you that are in front of me, are outside of the blessing, the promises here. Because a lot of people think that these things are just like automatic. Right? Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose, and therefore anybody that walks into a church. Right? Anybody that goes through certain rituals. Like is going to have these benefits. Anybody who's baptized. And the reality is it's, it's not the case. These things are not automatic. They're not given. These blessings are not given by default. People are not justifi justified by default. They're not forgiven by default. These blessings, these promises are reserved for those who believe. Do you see that in the text? Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is forgiven and justified. Everyone who believes. So this is these promises are for those who respond to this gracious invitation. And this is important. You know, I was thinking about this analogy used in my Sunday school class, thanks to my wife. She's the one that came up with it. I had one, it wasn't very good, and she gave me a better one. So um this analogy is like using a ring analogy, okay? So picture you got the diamond, you got the prong, and you got the, the band and the ring, right? Um so the diamond on a ring, okay? Picture that as the gospel, the essence of the gospel. Jesus' life, death, resurrection from the dead, and the promises built into that, forgiveness of sins, right? Justification, right? A new verdict, a favorable verdict over your life. All these things, that's the diamond. That's what shines, right? And then you have the prongs and the band, which are these things, these truths from the Bible that help us really appreciate the diamond. Help us to understand why the diamond is so beautiful. A little bit like Paul did here at the beginning of this text, giving that history of promise to say, hey, that's why this is needed. This is what God is doing, right? To showcase the diamond. But here's the thing. God comes with a ring, right? And a beautiful, I mean, clear, big diamond. Huh? Give it to you. And there you go. You just sit and you look at it. You go, oh, I understand about what the diamond is about. And what a what fine band you have there in those prongs that lift it up. No, this is what a lot of people do. They hear about the gospel. They know about the gospel. I didn't ask if you knew about it, if you heard about it. Actually, have you put it on? Have you put it on through repentance and faith? That's what the Bible teaches. You have to recognize your own guilt before God. 
And you got to come to him for forgiveness, okay? And you have to put it on by faith. You have to lean your whole soul on him. And this is important. This is important. Because they were trying to lean on other things. Well, i got this law book here. Right? And I've kept a lot of these things. I've done a lot of good things. People in our day, right? Even in our community, a lot of people are banging. Some of you are in this seat right now, and you got one foot in one world and one foot in the other, right? You're like living a ritual life over here. I'm doing these things, trying to make sure, just in case, kind of hedge my bets a little bit. And God is saying, if you do not throw your whole soul on my son, on this man, Jesus Christ, you will perish. You have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Paul was glad to say this in and I'm glad to say it here, because this needs to be announced in every generation and in every single community. And so I just say, see to it that you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That you've acknowledged your guilt before him, and that you're looking to Christ alone. No religious system, right? And not even any vague sense of your own goodness. Those things will crumble on judgment. They will not stand. And I want to prepare you better for that. And I don't want to live, I don't want you living this life, even. This precious life that you have, living in that in-between state. Throw yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this text is about. Because if you don't put the ring on, what happens? What's the danger? You just stare at the ring even. And you might say, that's a fine ring you have there. Glad you asked. Because the Paul, Paul has an answer for you. Verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, <laughs> lest what is said in the prophets should be said about you. Then he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So he quotes from Habakkuk as a way of saying, look, the prophets of old, they would give these warnings, right? Continue to rebel against God, Babylon's going to come in judgment, right? And he's saying, look, if God followed through on that in their day, how much more is he going to follow through in this day when he's revealed his son, Jesus Christ, the deliverer? If it could be this clear who Jesus is, what Jesus Christ has done, how we must respond in repentance and faith. If it can be that clear, when we still just stare at the ring, or even in a high-handed way, says, right, I don't need it. I'm called, in echoing the apostles and the prophets, to say, beware. And this is for my brothers and sisters, and I say, there's a place for warning when we share the gospel. It's not just Bible coming people, but if you care for souls, you want them to be able to know what's at stake. And that's why Paul says here, beware. You can't reject the gospel. Some are going to receive it, some are going to reject it, but if those reject it, they need to know. They need to know the serious consequences of rejecting the gospel. Because there is no hope apart from that. There is absolutely no hope. Thankfully, in this last part of our text, you see the positive side of how people respond. Verse 42 and verse 43. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Which is another saying, they followed Christ. Who, 
as they spoke with them, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Many responded to this, right? They received the grace of God. They knew they couldn't earn it themselves, so they needed a free gift of grace on the basis of what Jesus Christ had done for them. And so they did. They responded in faith. They put on the Lord Jesus, and that day, their sins were forgiven. And the verdict changed over their life. They were righteous, justified in God's sight. They went home believing. And so they embraced the grace of God, and the exhortation was to continue in the grace of God. So let's put together a summary here as I close. So what is the gospel? What is the good news, the word of encouragement? It is the message of salvation about how Jesus... The innocent Savior was put to death by men and then raised to life by God to fulfill his plan and promise so that forgiveness of sins and a favorable verdict might be offered to everyone in every generation. As is true in every generation, the promises become a reality for those who believe and they are withheld from those who refuse. That's what was said in a nutshell. And having believed this gospel of grace, we, in a sense, get to rehearse this. This for us, we get to be reminded today, and even as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that this is what it's about. This is a celebration meal that helps us be reminded that God has kept his promise. That God has sent a deliverer. In fact, Jesus himself is going to be hosting us as we partake in it. It's the Lord's Supper. He's inviting us to be around the table with him and partake. He's the one, when he gets here, he us, remember me. Right? Remember how my body was broken for you. And how my blood was shed for you to make a covenant with you that could never be broken. This is what he said when he was with us. So that we, in a sense, get to sit at this moment as those who have believed and said, All my sin for you. And my verdict changed. And so, in one sense, the banner over our gathering is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous. And we get to sit peacefully on the earth, celebrating the greatest news in the world. You want a word of encouragement? I just gave you the word of encouragement. It doesn't get better than this. This is what we get to rehearse. This is what our souls need more than anything else. And it is indeed what we are going to be singing about and praising God for, for all of eternity. And I'm looking forward to, after I pray, partaking of the supper with you. And beholding the one who is promised. Beholding the one who came. And beholding the one that has now been thrown on our hearts. Let's pray. <coughs> oh Lord, what more can we say than to say thank you? To say thank you for bringing us the word of encouragement. Lord, we often think 
that we need so many other things, but what we need more than anything is your son. We thank you for your promise, and we thank you for making good on your promise and sending forth your son. We thank you for his innocence that makes up for our rebellion. We thank you for his death that dealt with our sin. We thank you for his resurrection that has guaranteed our life now and for eternity. We thank you, Lord, that our sins in Christ are forgiven. And we thank you that the verdict has been changed. Thank you that you have peace with you, Lord, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I do pray, pray and plead for those here who have not truly put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I plead with you for their sake. Even those who have just been going through the motions for a long time, Lord, that you would give them grace to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to truly put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Even help them to repent of going through the motions for years. And that you would sovereignly bring new life into their lives. That they might live. And no longer live for themselves, but live for you. And for your glory. And for a much higher and more noble purpose than they need. God, I thank you for being able to worship with these brothers and sisters. We thank you that though none of us is deserved, that we get to sit at your table, and it's all of grace. So Lord, I pray that you minister to each of our hearts as we remember the past and what your Son has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. As we think about you in the present and how you are spiritually present with us by your Spirit to nourish our hearts by faith as we think about the realities that we're meant to remember. And Lord, to be with us in a special way as we look forward to that ultimate wedding feast where we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. May this be a true foretaste of what we're going to experience in the day. We pray not that far away. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.